Hello and welcome to Earthcast, a platform for discussions about bridging the resource gap between people and planet. I am Olivia Taylor, or Olivia Earth on the socials, your host, and I will be interviewing a series of change makers, thinkers and disruptors, and asking them about their areas of expertise. Together, we will discover fresh perspectives and the most useful levers in society for change. The main question that we will explore is how are trade-offs made between people, planet and profit? More specifically, how do we solve wicked problems and make decisions at the margin? If you would like to hear more from Earthcast, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. Hi there, and welcome back to Earthcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, I will be speaking to Ben Goldsmith, who is the CEO and founder of Menhaden Capital, a London-listed investment trust with a focus on energy and resources. However, Ben has many other interests which host a huge diversity. Some of these include being the chair of the Conservation Environment Network, a trustee of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, the co-founder of the UK Environment Funders Network, and an executive producer of Fire in Babylon, a film on the great undefeated West Indies cricket team. This is just to name a few of the projects that Ben is involved in. We first met in 2012 when I was 14 years old at a really cool club in London. And we spoke about all things conservation, as well as the power of really good networking and meaningful connections. This was just after I'd started my nonprofit company. To be honest, this meeting was a huge confidence boost to me and I guess pretty influential for my career. So, Ben, I want to know, what have you been up to since we last spoke? Hi, and what are some of the that coolest projects you've been on? Hi, Olivia. So, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to be asked to do this. And, um, yeah, I remember our, it was a breakfast meeting we had at my older brother's private members club in London. And uh, I, I'm always really pleased to meet anyone who is as passionate and in love with nature as I am. Um, so I, um, I think the most exciting thing happening in my country, in the United Kingdom right now, is the kind of awakening that's taking place amongst people of all kinds, urban, rural, young, old, farmers, not farmers, that the natural fabric of our country is terribly, terribly degraded. So five or six or 10 years ago, it was considered completely normal that the highlands of Scotland are treeless and bare and very, very barren. People just thought that that's the natural state of the place or the, or the Welsh hills or most of our national parks. Um, the reality is we've lost our great upland wood pastures. We've lost our, most of our wetlands um, and we've lost many, many species over the last thousand years. In fact, most of the keystones in the British ecosystem disappeared between 1720 and 1820 and hence some of the ecological collapse we've seen. So people are waking up to this now and they are demanding that things change and that nature is restored on a grand scale. And politicians hear that and suddenly for the first time in my life, there is real ambition. So in previous eras, I remember politicians tossing a, a million pounds in a budget for tree planting in the North or sort of tokenistic gestures, you know, kind of fixing church roofs kind of gestures. Well, now there's, there's a, a new commitment of almost a billion pounds for tree planting and peatland restoration in the, new, in the most recent budget. Um, there is another three billion for helping developing countries around the world restore mangroves and coastal salt marshes and other important ecosystems. And most importantly, there's a change to the way we're subsidizing farming, which has taken place since I last saw you. And that is that from now on, the 2.5 billion pound annual farming budget 
will be handed out to farmers conditional upon them restoring nature. And the more ambitious they are, the more they get paid. So in the really productive farming landscapes of the East, I don't think we'll see a great deal of change. We'll just see better practices. But in the wilder landscapes of the North and the West, where farming really doesn't make much economic sense, I think we're going to see rewilding. I think we're going to see species reintroductions. And, and it's already happening. There are beavers back after a 500-year absence now on seven or eight different British river systems. The wild boar is now back, which is kind of the British answer to the warthog, which has been extinct as well for 250 years. Um, there's, there's moves afoot to bring back the lynx, which is our secretive, spotty, deer hunting big cat. Not quite as big as a leopard, but I guess bigger than a serval cat. And been absent for at least seven or 800 years. And I think that in the next year or two, they'll be back in Scotland and the north of England. So there is a kind of awakening and a kind of emergent rewilding movement in the United Kingdom, which is really, really moving fast. So that's the biggest piece of news, I guess, since I last saw you. Thanks, Ben. And I, I really appreciate you reflecting on that, especially the the sort of growing authenticity of the of the projects and sort of, you know, perhaps corporate social responsibility I know that in the past, the it's it's sort of been a checkbox exercise. Not to say that it isn't anymore, but it's definitely it's definitely a lot more authentic. But I wanted oh, yeah, to chat. You've you've written some some really interesting articles for Reaction, which is a British commentary. It's, it's a news website that features commentary and analysis on politics and economics. And one of the the things that you've written, you were writing about rewilding and about biodiversity loss. So I wanted to know what does the UK need in order to correct its rampant biodiversity loss. 75% of Britain is farmed. So it's it's changing the course of farming that's going to be key. And I think that we need kind of two things. We need, uh, both begin with R. We need regenerative farming in the really productive farmed landscapes, mostly in the East. 85% of the food we produce is produced on just 20% of our land. In these places, we need um, productive farming because we've got to feed ourselves, but in a way that protects and restores the soil health and which minimizes and, and ultimately eliminates chemical inputs. And we, we need to combine ancient wisdom, the kind of rotational practices and so on of our ancestors with the best of modern technology, you know, satellite imagery and drone technology and soil sensors and integrated pest management and build a really productive, super green regenerative farming sector in those landscapes. In the rest of Britain, which makes up the majority of our landscapes, we need, I think, rewilding or, or wilder farming, if you like. Um, and, and that means restoring in most places the great wood pastures that blanketed most of our country when Julius Caesar arrived in, 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 in whenever it was, 30 or 40 AD. I might have got that year dreadfully wrong. I'm more of an ecologist than a historian. And, um, and uh, the, the, the key lies in the fact that of the four keystone species in the British environment, one is the cattle. There was always a wild ox in Britain, and then with people came the, the domesticated cattle. And when a landscape starts to recover its trees in Britain, if you don't have cattle, you end up with a dense closed canopy forest, which is, in, in, in terms of biodiversity, relatively species poor. What you want is a kind of mosaic, sun-dappled, open wood pasture with complexity. And it's the cattle that engineer that environment because they munch and they graze and they trample and they browse. And you end up with a kind of, um, with a complex ecosystem that looks like an open wood pasture. A bit like, a, like the landscapes of East Africa that, that appeal to so many uh, British wildlife lovers. Um, and, and, and so therein lies the silver bullet because we want farming to continue in these remoter landscapes. And we also want 
wild landscapes. So the answer is to reward farmers for farming with native cattle extensively, low density, so that the wood pastures can recover. If that occurs, then we will be, um, we will be in a much, much better place from a nature perspective um, than we have been for hundreds of years. Um, and, and that is going to happen because of the change in the way we subsidize farming. You know, both of these things will happen because we're going to incentivize them um, with, with, with taxpayer pounds. There's a two and a half billion pound farm budget each year. And from now on, that operates under a system known as public money for public good. And I, I'm on the board of the British government's environment and agriculture department, DEFRA, and have been involved in pushing for such a reform. And it's been a big old battle. And four years in, we've done it. It's had royal assent from the Queen, and the transition is now underway. So I think farm subsidies are the biggest, are the biggest answer to your question. That's really interesting, Ben. Something definitely to think about. I know that your context and my context are quite different, so it's really interesting for me to think about how that's been successful for you or overseas in context when we were sitting here in South Africa. But I guess you know you, you touched on ancient wisdom, which I definitely want to chat to you about a bit later. But when when you speak about rewilding or, or wilder farming, as it as you call it in your article on reaction, you know what what are the barriers to this? You know you've mentioned a, a couple of them with regard to the cornerstone, getting the cornerstone species back. But what are some of the other barriers? The biggest barrier has been that people have been paid by the state to farm intensively in landscapes that are simply not suited for intensive farming. You know, so some of these hillsides in the Lake District have been crammed with sheep for 150 years, and and the numbers of sheep. 150 years ago, when Queen Victoria was on the throne, was about half a million in Britain. There's now 35 million or so sheep. And they eat everything. They're not native to our landscape. And they are forensic in their ability to eat everything that sticks its head above the earth. And so you end up with these landscapes that are kind of up. I mean, Lake District is kind of like a bowling green with contours. There's just nothing there. So as soon as you no longer subsidize sort of intensive ranching of sheep across great swathes of the British landscape, and you provide a direct incentive for farmers to move to a much wilder, much more traditional way of farming using native cattle at low densities, you will see an unbelievable recovery of nature. And in conjunction with that, we need to restore the other ecosystem engineers or keystone species in the British landscape. So the cattle being one of the most important, the second is the wild boar, which is our native wild pig, because that's nature's gardener. And without wild boar, you don't have wildflowers because a lot of annual and biannual wildflowers need bare earth in which to germinate their seeds. In fact, lots of trees as well, like the black poplar, which is now our rarest tree, is dependent upon wild boar because its seeds can only germinate on bare earth. So the wild boar effectively paints stripes of color across the landscape because it plows up the earth during the winter and those patches become rich in wildflowers during the summer. So the wild boar is number two. Number three is the beaver. And the beaver across the Northern Hemisphere, there are two species, the North American beaver and the Eurasian beaver, was more or less annihilated. Probably 400 million beavers reduced to less than 5,000 in 1900. The beaver is now back in Britain. And beavers engineer the little streams and tributaries at the top of a river catchment by building dams. And those dams hold back water. And therefore, they help reduce flooding, which is helpful to us humans. They help reduce drought. And they create these lovely ribbons of permanent wetlands through the landscape, which are super abundant in all kinds of life, not just fish and amphibians, but all kinds of birds and wildlife and so on. So beavers are the key for breathing life back into our landscapes because they hold the water back in the upper part of the catchment. Um, and then finally, there's the wolf. You know, we, we've got rid of all of our apex predators in Britain. You have all of yours still in South Africa. So take Scotland 
Well, Scotland, the problem is not sheep, it's deer. There are 20 times more deer than the landscape can ever possibly accommodate in its current state. And they're fed by people in the winter and it's kind of canned shooting, if you like. You know, it's like shooting cows in Hyde Park. And it was super easy and huge numbers of these poor creatures shivering on these bare hillsides. If you brought the wolf back to Scotland, they would bring deer numbers back into check. And then the forests of Scotland or the great open woodlands of Scotland, the Caledonian forest that was once famous across the world could start to recover. So I, I, I figure that the answer is in providing incentives to land managers, landowners, to bring back these essential processes and bring back these keystone species. And farming can go hand in hand with that because the cattle is an essential component, one of the four. Yeah, so I, I guess it's a, it's a reintroduction of the, the way that the landscape used to be 200 years ago. Um, but that, yeah, it's really exactly. interesting to see how that happens in, in practice given the, the current context of the world. And if I could just add to that, I think there's a really exciting move happening as well. And that is that people are starting to recognize and understand the economic value of healthy nature and the services it provides to us. So, for example, the Wessex Water Company, which is one of the UK's largest water companies, was facing the prospect of having to build a huge new plant in Poole, in Dorset, to clean the nitrates and the phosphates out of the drinking water they provide to their customers. And some bright spot within Wessex Water said, instead of investing hundreds of millions of pounds in a new water treatment plant, why don't we simply pay the farmers in this catchment not to apply nitrates and phosphates to their land? And so a deal was struck with several hundred farmers further up the catchment that they would go organic and stop using nitrates and phosphates. And that deal is extremely valuable to those farmers. It, it runs into the tens of millions each year. And it has saved Wessex Water a huge amount of money in not having to build this water treatment system. And the people from within Wessex Water who devised that deal have now spun out with backing from, from the company and they've set up their own business. And they're establishing 12 marketplaces like this now up and down the UK in which various interests are paying landowners to restore nature on their land because it saves them money. So for example, towns which flood regularly are now moving towards a model in which they pay landowners further up the catchment to allow the trees to grow on their land and to put beavers back and to generally restore nature in order that when it rains, the water doesn't rush into living rooms in the town. So it's much cheaper to do that than to build concrete infrastructure and walls that get higher and higher. So flood mitigation, cleaner water, public access, all of these things are services that have a real value and the market is now prepared to pay, that, pay for them. So if you combine the changing subsidy system in the way in which I described, plus these new markets for the services that healthy nature provide, it's becoming the most profitable thing to do with land in Britain to restore nature on it. So that is, um, that is why things are suddenly changing very, very fast. And I didn't even mention carbon. Now, carbon is now one of the biggest sources of funding for nature conservation in Africa. Now, companies like Microsoft and IBM and Google have pledged to offset all of the carbon emissions they've made throughout the life of those companies. And so they're going to do that by providing money to people around the world who are restoring nature because the nature will absorb carbon from the atmosphere and lock it away, whether it's a peatland or a coastal salt marsh or a mangrove forest or a savanna forest or whatever it might be. It absorbs carbon when it heals. And so there's a huge potential as well in, in voluntary carbon markets. And Mark Carney, who used to be governor of the Bank of England, reckons that'll be a $100 billion a year market by 2024. So that's $100 billion of new money for nature restoration that didn't exist 
when we had breakfast at that club in Five Hartford Street in London, um, whenever it was. So I think things really are changing. And, and I think it's partly economically driven. Yeah, Ben, that's that's super interesting. I didn't realize that um, that the change had happened so quickly. You know, I'm quite quite new on the scene, relatively new on the scene. So it's, I guess, quite encouraging to hear how quickly these these shifts have happened. And it's just really encouraging to know how fast we are able to move into into a new type of transition. But I want to know from you, what do you think briefly is the link between Britain's environmental degradation, the social decline that you've mentioned in the reaction articles, and also economic breakdown? So, I mean, I think that they, well, you mean particularly in, 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 in respect to the COVID um, episode, for example. I mean, I think that because I think the last year has brought tremendous suffering to a lot of people. Um, the, the lockdowns more than the virus, in fact. I mean, the virus is frightening and it's nasty, but the lockdowns have been far worse. So the, the, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization reckoned 265 million people are facing starvation as a result of lockdowns um, in the UK. Um, I feel sure that we're going to see tremendous increases in everything from undiagnosed, untreated cancers and other diseases, domestic violence, depression, suicide, unemployment is going through the roof, small business bankruptcies. So huge amounts of suffering have been brought by the lockdowns that have been imposed by governments. But I think there is a silver lining. And I think the silver lining to the times that we've been going through is that people had a great chunk of time in which to reflect upon what really matters in their lives. On, on, for example, how quiet and how clean the streets can be when traffic doesn't exist. You know, how um, you, we saw images of, of uh, dolphins playing in the harbor at Trieste and wild boar running with their babies through the streets of Berlin. You know, Indians were astonished in, in Delhi and, and, um, and uh, parts of Northern India that they could see the Himalayas for the first time because the air was cleaner. And I think that people suddenly realized quite how important healthy, diverse, abundant nature is in our lives. And so I think that, that, that there's been a kind of psychological shift triggered by the deprivations of the last year and a half. And I don't think there's any going back from that. Now, every day with all the restaurants and bars and theaters shut, all people have been able to do to fill their time and, 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 and to get out of the house has been to go and find local nature and spend time in it. And spring last year during the first lockdown, I think was, was for a lot of people, more vivid than, than any spring that they ever remembered before because they witnessed it day in, day out on their daily trips to the park or their local nature reserve or even just to go and walk down the local railway siding or wherever it was. So, and, and I think that this is the second part of the solution. Now, I think economics and, and, and figuring out the true economic value of nature gets us so far, but it doesn't get us all the way. I, th I think that we only really solve the problem when people really genuinely reconnect with nature. And I think we're all born with it, with an innate love of the natural world. I mean, I, I find any two or three year old that isn't fascinated by a frog, you know, or a, you know, or a butterfly, you know, we, we, we are fascinated by and in love with and drawn to the natural world from the very moment we open our eyes. Um, there's an expression, I think E.O. Wilson, writer, coined the expression biophilia which describes the innate love for the non-human world that we all have within us. But I think in lots and lots of people in the Western world, it gets buried somehow. It kind of it kind of becomes dormant as they grow up. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's they didn't have parents that that that, that were able to take take them into nature, that would show them nature, spent too much time playing video games. I don't know what it is, but the biophilia in most people in the Western world is dormant. 
And I think that that is the root cause of our kind of social impoverishment. I think it's at the root of so many of our social problems, depressions and drug abuse and all the different issues. And I think that, that the only way we are going to heal nature and also ourselves is if we can find a way to reawaken that innate love of nature that is within everyone. You know, it's, it's almost kind of, you know, I'm not a religious person, but it's almost a kind of spiritual quest. You know, people need to find God in nature. Most people in the world are very religious. And I think that, 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 that they need to find God in nature. You know, that in, the, in the way that you do, you know, Olivia, you've been obsessed with nature since the moment you were born. You know, to, to the extent whether or not you're religious, nature is where you find God, you know, and, and, um, and that needs to be true of everyone. And so I, I figure that that is the, that is the bigger picture. And that, that is the make or break that is the make or break topic, in my opinion. Talking of which, can you hear the muezzin in the background now? <laughs> oh, lovely. Yes, I can. I can hear that now. Yeah. Ben, maybe you just want to say where you are for context. Yeah, I'm on an island called Lamu, which is off Kenya. And we've been um, lucky enough to be out of the UK during this especially bleak winter during lockdown because we, we found ourselves already out out of the uk in december when the new lockdown was very suddenly imposed and um we decided to stay out and, and travel around the indian ocean a bit and here we are at the moment in lamu which is a, um, a an environmental paradise but but even here even in a place like lamu which is um you know very much more intact in in terms of its nature than many places i've been in the world even here there has been a tremendous depletion you know, a, a guy called Abdul, who's fished all his life, took, took us out fishing two days ago, told me he didn't go to school because he enjoyed fishing so much and talked about how the seas literally boiled with life, boiled with fish at certain times of year, that he could catch a yellowfin, a mature yellowfin tuna, casting his line from the beach when he was a boy and how the seabed was so full of lobsters and the seas so full of prawns that it took an hour or two hours to feed the whole village if they went out to catch lobsters or fish or whatever. And, and it's been obliterated. I mean, it's really, really hard to catch anything now. There, there are fish here still, but it's nothing like what was here when he was a boy. And that's partly because the Kenyan government has allowed huge multinational uh, uh, trawlers to come in, Chinese trawlers, Taiwanese trawlers, and so on to come in and, and, and hoover everything up. And partly because the local fishing communities are not managing the resource sustainably. And, uh, you see young boys with mosquito nets catching up the little fry, you know, near the shore. You know, those are the baby groupers, the baby um, uh, tuners and so on. And they're catching them up when they're as big as my fingernails, you know, and, and using them to make soup or whatever. So there is an unsustainable management of the sea here and the depletion is devastating, even here. Um, so we need to turn it around. There's some amazing, sorry, without sounding too negative, there are some amazing groups working here, by the way, I've met them. The, the Northern Rangelands Trust are here. And they're setting up um, community marine conservancies or, or replenishment zones, as they call them, working in partnership with local fishing communities to set aside important breeding grounds uh, from fishing. Um, you've also got an organization called the Taka Taka Foundation, which I met in the village. Um, and they are offering a kilo of rice for every 10 kilos of waste plastic brought in. And last week, 26 tons of plastic was collected by locals, especially children from around the archipelago. Um, there's another lady who's devoted her life, a local lady, to protecting the marine turtles that nest on the beaches of Lamu. And she has a whole system going with volunteers and wardens and all sorts of things. So they're, they're, at the grassroots, there are amazing people doing amazing things. And we just need to do our best to empower these people. Um, 
that's where I am. Thanks, Ben. And I, I really like the the fact that you mentioned that um, we now, given given the state that we're in in the 21st century, actually have to give nature an economic value in order to protect it. Whether the physically that 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 love of nature, or I think you said biophile. Please correct biophilia. me. Biophilia. Yeah. Biophilia. You know that that intrinsic love of nature is unfortunately just not enough in 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 this in this world to to actually protect it, and so we have to to actually give it an economic value. But I guess that moves me on to my next point, Ben. I wanted I want to chat to you a bit about policy, uh, especially in the EU and the UK. So for those of you listening who are not familiar with the EU and the UK's policies, CAP or CAP is the EU's common agricultural policy and Ben has criticized it as CAP accounts for 35% of the total EU budget. And I quote Ben, under the CAP, vast amounts of taxpayers' money has been dished out each year to farmers according simply to how much land they farm. These subsidies drove most farmers to grub out ancient hedgerows, remove trees, ponds, and wetlands through margins and any other natural features in order to maximize space for harvesting subsidies. CAP has, in brief, been replaced by ELM, or Environmental Land Management. So I want to know, what are the, the, the differences that either impress or bother you about CAP and ELM? And then the second question I'm going to ask you about this is, you know, how might other countries learn from, from the UK's experience? And is it applicable in Africa? And if in Africa, where? You know, big country, 54, big continent, 54 countries. So Western, Western farm subsidies have been an absolute disaster for Africa because, particularly in the United States, farmers get huge amounts of cash from the taxpayer with no strings attached. And so they produce food that is very artificially cheap which is then dumped either in the form of aid or in the form of, of exports on African markets and therefore um, undercutting local farmers and local producers. And the consequence of that has been catastrophic um, across the developing world. Typically, it's only the rich countries in the world that subsidize their farmers. So it's, it's principally the EU and the United States, but also Canada and Australia and so on. And the problem with, with sub direct subsidies is that as well as creating a kind of lazy industry that doesn't evolve, doesn't progress, doesn't seek greater efficiency because it's living with the kind of cash handouts from the taxpayer, it also creates an incentive, certainly under the area-based approach that they have in Europe, to turn every square inch into farmland. So it doesn't matter how inappropriate it is for farming, if you don't farm it, you don't get your subsidy. So if you have an estate or a piece of land in Poland or France or Spain, which has got a nice wetland, um, on, on the bottom of the valley, let's say, and it's great for wading birds and butterflies and God knows what else. If you don't plough it up, you don't get subsidised. Even though your tractor gets stuck and the, the yields are terrible there, the incentive is still to do so. so. So the common agricultural policy, in my opinion, in Europe and the equivalent, which is the farm bill in the United States, I think have been the most disastrous, environmentally disastrous policies ever devised by any Western government ever. I mean, the, the consequences have been absolutely appalling for nature. And then when you take into account the social and economic cost in, in the developing world of having all this ultra cheap food dumped on them, you know, it's, it's kind of a calamity. So uh, the UK is the first country in the world to take those subsidies and, and to direct them according to a model which operates under the banner, public money for public good. So you're a farmer, you're gonna receive public money you have to deliver public goods in return. And those public goods, 
will come in the form of carbon sequestration, uh, restoring nature, um, uh, uh, helping to mitigate flooding, providing public access, and so on. And, and if, you, if you stop the average Joe on the street, they will appreciate that that makes great sense. Nobody could understand why we would just dish out subsidies for no, no discernible reason. In terms of Africa, this doesn't really apply because African nations don't typically subsidize their farmers in the same way. But if farming subsidies were reformed in the West, the US and Europe, then, then that improves the lot of African farmers for sure, because uh, inevitably the price of food uh, creep, creeps up and some of the kind of artificial cheapness is eroded. Um, so I, but I think this is a very powerful, very powerful tool for policymakers. I, I think in Africa, I think um, some of the small scale regenerative approaches that are championed by organizations like the One Acre Fund, I think represent a really exciting solution. You know, supporting, supporting small scale farmers across the Sahel, for example, in integrating conventional agriculture with trees in the form of agroforestry, for example, uh, which helps preserve the soil, helps retain water, helps sequester carbon, and is typically more productive as well. So I think the big effort in Africa should be helping small-scale farmers to steward their land better whilst producing more food. And um, I think One Acre Fund is a really good example of how you can do that. Um, and then we just we just need to set aside land which is simply not suitable for farming. We need to make make more space for nature, you know, as, as, as well as making our farmed landscapes suitable for nature. I think there are great stretches of the world where the land has been degraded and serves no economic purpose. And in those places, we need to get about rewilding, restoring missing species, restoring forests, removing invasives and so on. Thanks, Ben. I actually had no idea about, about the differences between uh, CAP and ELM. So I really appreciate you explaining why, why CAP has been a, a, a problem in your opinion. But I'm not sure if I've told you, but I've actually recently gone back to university and I've been studying a lot about deep ecology. And I was doing some research and I know your uncle, uh, Edward Goldsmith, wrote about deep ecology, which was obviously a cutting edge, disruptive environmental thinking late last century. However, subsequent critique shows that deep ecology fails to recognize societal issues. However, this type of thinking and its critiques have greatly enriched the debate on contemporary sustainability. So coming back to ancient wisdoms, you've written about ancient wisdoms before. So my question is, is the mainstream recognition of ancient or indigenous knowledge the new cutting edge disruptive thinking? And if not, what role does ancient wisdom play and how useful is it? So I think, um, I think when I talk about ancient wisdom, I'm talking about an inner sense of connectedness with and empathy for the natural world and listening to that. I think that's what I mean by ancient wisdom. So for most indigenous communities that I've read about and that I've seen, um, nature is sacred. You know, rivers have souls. You know, trees have a kind of existence of their own. Individual members of those societies have tremendous knowledge and understanding of what the different plants can do for them and what role different species play in the ecosystem. And, 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 and that combination of kind of connectedness and empathy and understanding leads to, leads to a situation in which societies live in harmony with the natural world. Um, and so it's no accident that some of the most important ecosystems that remain in the world are in the stewardship of indigenous people. Um, uh, vast tracts of the Amazon, for example, or the Pacific Islands, um, the huge, huge, kind of huge proportion of the greatest wildernesses that remain in the world are under the stewardship of indigenous people. And so I think that they, they, they not only from a practical perspective are guardians of some of these awesome 
impossibly magical ecosystems that remain and, and, and we should be empowering them to continue that role. I think they also provide us with a guiding light as to how we need to amend our own way of living. You know, for, for too long, Western society has seen nature effectively as a bunch of resources that are there for the harvesting and that's it. You know, we, 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 we've, we've, we've removed the enchantment from nature. We've removed God from nature. You know, nature is just, you know, trees are wood for building with, you know, fish are to be caught and commoditized and eaten. And I think that we need to re-enchant nature in the way that the indigenous do, if, if we're going to survive as a civilization. I mean, I think it's as simple as that. So I don't, I don't know whether ancient wisdom is necessarily the right term. It's, it's kind of possibly deeper than that. It's, we, you know, we, need to, we, need, we, we need to foster a kind of spiritual connection with nature, which I think is within us all anyway. You know, as I said, I think we're all born with this biophilia. And I, I don't know how, we, I think the COVID crisis, I think has, has reawakened that in many people. So I think we are at a kind of turning point in some way, but fundamentally we need to reform school, school curricula. You know, I think that nature and understanding and spending time in nature, I think has to be a really important part of a child's learning experience as they grow up, especially inner city kids. You know, I think we should be paying for inner city kids to get out into nature on a regular basis, camping and having nature experiences that they'll never forget you know, and, and learning about the natural environment around them and the fabric of which, of which they themselves are part. You know, I think, um, I think that, um, I think that, so I think schools and education have a big role to play. And I think that this is kind of, for me, this is the greatest challenge of society right now is reconnecting people with the natural world before it's too late. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate the, the sincerity in, in your answer to that question. And, uh, you know, and, and now I want to move to a more uh, hard-assed question. So, <laughs> So forgive me, but um, I, I want to understand as an investment professional, you know, have you ever turned down deals based on environmental or social factors or, you know, whether you have ethical concerns with the company? And, and if so, you know, where do you kind of draw the line between these issues? And you don't have to give me names, but are there any examples of gray areas and difficult decisions you've had to make? And um, in your work, do, you know, do you use a set of international guidelines such as the sustainable development goals or do you use um your own moral compass to to do something like that so i am um, yeah so my I, I ought to explain that actually for your listeners so my day job I, I run an investment fund called manhattan um we we focus on the theme of of energy and resource efficiency so i think that's just another way of saying you know, the, the green industrial revolution because ultimately that whole story is one of efficiency you know, how, how can we make our economies circular so that stuff doesn't get wasted how can we use things much more efficiently you know, from switching to led lighting to um renewable energy um th 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 this, is, this is sort of where we focus so that's my day job and then i spend a chunk of time outside of that kind of hustling for nature in in various different ways various board suits that you mentioned and so on and try to find ways in which i can be um useful and helpful to, to the cause so in terms of the investment fund that i manage I, I think it's quite difficult to prescribe in writing what we exclude. So I'd say the moral compass um, uh, uh, description is probably more accurate. But it, 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 with, with portals like the CDP, which is the Carbon Disclosure Project, which has a number of subsidiary disclosure projects like the Forest Footprint Disclosure Project and the Water Disclosure Project, the companies are now reporting their environmental impact in ways that can be used and well, understood and used by investors. So we use a lot of that data. So when we look at a company, you know, it's immediately quite clear to us if they are 
for example, um, uh, 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 benefiting from tropical deforestation down their supply chain, or if they emit more carbon per unit of output than their peers in the same in the same market, you know, we we can see all that. And so, yeah, of course, we use that data. But fundamentally, it boils down to, I, I'd say, a kind of moral question, a, a moral compass um, kind of description. It's you know, it's never clear cut, is it? You know, electric cars have batteries which take the most um, take rare metals which come from um, mines which cause terrible environmental destruction and human suffering. You know, it's never straightforward. It's never there are always shades of grey, and it's quite a complex and nuanced kind of debate around each position that we hold or don't hold. And there are always kind of differing views within the investment committee. So Ben, I guess then the next question I want to ask you is what big issue are you most concerned with at the moment? You know, social, environmental, governance, anything. Um, you know, what is keeping you up at night and what are some of the, the most exciting solutions that you're toying with? So, I mean, I think that um, what worries me in terms of, a, presumably you want a kind of global answer. I think the thing that worries me is that whilst we are moving in the right direction in respect of the climate issue, you know, we, are, we are moving towards a world in which we generate electricity from renewable sources instead of fossil fuels, simply because they're cheaper now than, 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 than fossil fuels. We're, the electrification of transport is starting to move with some degree of pace. You know, we, our, our industries are starting to decarbonize. You know, our cities are becoming smarter. You know, stuff is happening, and I think that the, the kind of the world is moving towards the decarbonization of its economic activity. So I'm sort of optimistic on that. The problem is nature is being forgotten, and if we don't also stop destroying nature and start to heal nature at scale, I think we're toast. You know, I don't think it's going to be enough simply to stop emitting carbon dioxide. We have to draw greenhouse gases back out of the atmosphere, and we have to restore the natural equilibrium of the world. We're starting to the world, the humans are starting to understand now, scientists are starting to understand that, that nature is really one single kind of fabric, you know, and, 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 and we're part of that and really we're killing it. So my, my big worry is that nature is missing out, it's being bypassed. It's, governments are now beginning to do a much better job when it comes to decarbonizing the economy, but they are, they are forgetting nature. And um, so I think our great short-term challenge right now, or let's put it in a more optimistic way, the great opportunity now is to get governments to pay as much attention to nature as they are finally to the climate, because the two are inextricable. And when you say climate, you mean you mean the global the the global climate in in general, or um, yeah, like you to say if, a little bit more on that? Yeah, yeah. If we, um, I guess my point is, if we if we succeed in decarbonizing our economy, it's not going to be enough. The climate is going to continue to change and we're going to suffer all kinds of unforeseeable consequences from the depletion of the natural world. You know, everything from water shortages to crop failures to new pandemics and so on. We know that the COVID pandemic emerged from eating endangered wildlife and bats in a market in Wuhan. We know that the more we encroach upon pristine habitats and kind of uh, 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 untouched rainforests, the more we're going to expose ourselves to, to um, uh, zoonotic diseases and so on that, that we haven't seen before. So th there's all sorts of consequences from not really completely rethinking our relationship with nature. And I think that that, that is, um, I think that is where the great challenge lies right now. And um, I figure it's, I think this, this is a super year for nature, isn't it? Because there, there are two big conference of the party meetings of world governments. You've got the climate 
COP. It's called in Scotland in October, and you've also got in China the Biodiversity COP. Um, and so these two meetings, I think, are hopefully going to be kind of sea change moments, each in their own right, at which world leaders kind of finally agree to go bananas on both. Um, and some are. If you look at what um, my former brother-in-law, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, is doing, it's, it's extraordinary. They've got their 10 billion tree tsunami, they're planting literally billions of trees each year. They've got their, their um, Green Heroes project in which tens of thousands of unemployed Pakistanis are now working directly in nature restoration. They have their Recharge Pakistan initiative, which is recreating wetlands on a grand scale and finally reconnecting the Indus with its historic floodplain, which was um, sealed off with concrete structures and weirs and dikes and dams by the British 100 years ago. Um, They've created 17 new national parks covering tens of thousands of square kilometers. They're creating corridors between their national parks. Um, they're pushing a big drive towards the reduction of pesticides and other chemical inputs in their cotton farms and other industrial farms. So, so Imran Khan in Pakistan is, is kind of showing the world what needs to be done. And I think the UK is also doing some great stuff. The, the president of Ethiopia is doing great stuff. Big tree planting projects as part of the Great Green Wall, which is going to stretch all the way from east to west Africa across the Sahel. So there is stuff happening and it's kind of sputtering. It's like an old engine that is just starting up. And um, I think that, that, that yeah, well, we need voices like yours. You know, I think we need, we need young people to mobilize en masse and demand this of their politicians. We need to go big, as big as we've ever gone on anything on, on, on the restoration of nature. Thanks, Ben. And I, I really love that, that, that concept of re reconnecting with nature. And it's such a pity that we even have to be having this conversation, but it, you know, whether it's something that needs to be integrated in schools, as you alluded to earlier, or <laughs> maybe we just need to raise better kids. <laughs> um, but just before I ask you um, our last question, uh, the last question, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today and, you know, really giving me your time to think about these issues. And to my listeners, if you guys would like to follow more of Ben's work, you can follow him on Twitter or Instagram at Ben Goldsmith. So, Ben, given your expertise, what question should I have asked you? Oh, goodness. I don't know that I have any expertise particularly. I'm just a big enthusiast. Um, I spend all of my free time in, in, uh, in, in, in immersed in nature with my kids, with my family. Um, we're rewilding a little farm in Somerset. Um, and um, it's a farm that was hopelessly uneconomic. You know, it's, it gets very wet in the winter and it's never been a particularly productive farm. So we're following that, that kind of wilder farming or rewilding playbook there. We, we, we've re-wiggled the stream, which one of my predecessors several decades ago had artificially straightened and constrained within a kind of concrete bank. Um, we have uh, taken all of the grazing animals off for a period of time to allow the trees and scrub to start to grow through the fields. And as this land slowly reverts to nature, um, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing us enormous joy and satisfaction. So I, I guess um, I, I, I might have asked me about that. You know, where do, where do I find my contact with nature? Where do I get my sustenance from? Because being there and spending time in that is really um, where I find solace and, and joy and satisfaction, fulfillment, and where I kind of reconnect myself with the natural world. And um, in fact, I, I can't think of anything more rewarding than finding a piece of land and bringing it back to life that, that someone can do. And so I'm very blessed to be able to do that. But expertise, I don't know. A lot of enthusiasm. Um, and I'm probably quite annoying to some of the officials within the Department for Environment, um, where I'm a board member, um, because I, um, I don't give up. 
Thank you for joining me today at Earthcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Let's chat next episode, where I will be asking more creatives and intellectual disruptors about making decisions at the margin. See you next time.